views expressed on this broadcast of Step by Step Towards Emotional Sobriety with Dr. Alan Berger do not necessarily reflect those of Take 12 Radio, KHLT Recovery Broadcasting, or our affiliates. Take 12 Radio and KHLT Recovery Broadcasting are not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. And now, here's your host, Dr. Alan Berger and the Monty Man. Well, welcome aboard, friends and family, those of you in recovery, advocates of, and perhaps some of you who should be. Welcome to another fine episode of Step by Step Towards Emotional Sobriety with our friend, the Sultan of Swing, Dr. Alan Berger. Welcome, Dr. Berger. Well, you, you have a new name for me every time I'm doing this show with you. Now I'm the Sultan of Swing. Now you're the Sultan of Swing, man. That, that's just, you know... You just you know you know they say about yeah, it. some of the things I've been called in my life. Well, there 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 you go. We just got to make sure that we understand that the swing is not a mood swing, right? <laughs> oh, oh, see, look at how clever you are, right? And this show is all about emotional what sobriety, the next frontier. Um, and we're going to be talking about uh, a smart thing number eight: comfort yourself when you. Are, are hurt, are, are disappointed, but we have a special guest with us uh, again this week, right? We do, Monty. I, I, and, you know, last show we had Bob Newton from the uh, Hazleton Betty Ford Center. And uh, this month um, we've got Mark Baumgartner joining us. He's the inpatient program director. And uh, I, I, as, you know, we've talked about on the show before, I've been coming out and doing some training for the staff and, and Mark and I have really connected out here, and I really love the work he's doing and, and what's happening, and I'm really glad you're on the show with us tonight, Mark. Thanks for having me, you guys. It's a privilege. You bet, Mark. Uh, now, you have, uh, just just to kind of qualify for, for the listeners, you have a master's in education from Stephen F. Austin State University. You have a B.S. in psychology. You worked for the Texas Youth Commission as a treatment specialist. What's a treatment specialist with the youth? Um, well, the uh, the Texas Youth Commission is basically the uh, youth prison system in Texas. Got it. And okay. yeah, so I worked with uh, folks who were working with uh, kids in the state's custody, and the uh, state of Texas was pretty invested invested in rehabilitating kids and. Um, getting them back uh, to their families uh, healthier than when they came in. It, Mark, is, te- is, is Texas a, as hardcore as they, they say? Uh, it depends what you're talking about. When, when you're talking about law enforcement and, and corrections? I don't think it's as bad as Arizona. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, pitch your tent here. This is where you're going to stay, buddy. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, Arizona's a wonderful state, and uh, uh, my heart's in, always going to be in Texas. I'm a lifelong uh, Texas Longhorn fan, so now that I've alienated myself in uh, Oregon with all the uh, <laughs> fever side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, th- that's okay. I have a. I happen to like. I'm. I'm a graphic artist. Uh, uh, before I was ever a broadcaster, and. I happen to like football teams based on their logos and their graphics. And so I have several T-shirts that have Texas Longhorns because I like the graphics. So there you go. There's the, there's the extent of my sports uh, fanship. <laughs> well, Mark, well, welcome welcome to Step by Step Towards Emotional Sobriety. Thank you for taking some time uh, to, to join us on the show. It's a privilege. I'm glad to be here. Mark has been a part of the training I've been doing out here and and we've spent some time talking about emotional sobriety. So I thought it might be good to open the show and ask Mark to share a little bit about how he sees that in terms of um, how critical it is in terms of working with some of the patients, in terms of helping them develop some stable recovery. Yeah, I mean, um, this, uh, you know, my my uh, most recent exposure to this idea of emotional sobriety came from uh, Dr. Berger, and he was presenting a letter that Bill W. wrote um, it's in a 1958 uh, grapevine uh, where Bill talked about emotional sobriety, and I just love the, um, 
maturity that Bill um, conveys in that in that letter where he talks about old timers. Um, uh, Dr. Berger introduced uh, me and, and the staff I work with as part of a uh, presentation on emotional sobriety um, to a letter Bill W. wrote that got published in a 1958 grapevine that's just a, an amazing thing to read. You can find it on the Internet pretty quick if you uh, do a search on emotional sobriety. But anyway, the, uh, the idea in the letter of um, these uh, old-timers, including Bill W. and AA, kind of um, getting to a place of um, despair and depression, um, having had unrealistic expectations about approval or um, uh, their, their functioning in the world um, uh, that was unrealistic, and then um, kind of getting recentered with uh, having realistic expectations was something I, I thought was pretty powerful and I identified with, especially since on my fifth step when I kind of looked at causes and conditions after uh, analyzing things, every resentment I had was based on unrealistic expectations of myself or others. So that that just resonated with me. And um, in terms of working with patients, you know, setting them up with... Um, this idea that um, um, life on life's terms doesn't mean that everything goes the way I want all the time. I know it sounds simple and, and uh, immature to think otherwise, but it's easy to get into um, that trap of thinking that way. Mark, why do you why do you think or do you think uh, that that we kind of got off track we, we you know my my personal experience within 12 step the 12 step rooms was even through the step process working with a sponsor really with my nose in the book and the whole nine yards not being meeting dependent but actually focusing on doing the work even then it wasn't until much later before i ever heard anything about emotional sobriety why is that i don't know um you know, I think um, I think working the you know working the steps and in particular the uh, the fourth and fifth brings you know brings some of that because of the yeah. awareness that comes from it. But yeah. um, you know, I you know one one thought is maybe um, because things seem to typically for many of us get so much better initially just by putting the booth down and having people to connect with and um, getting a sense of meaning back into our lives. Uh, new in recovery that um, maybe um, after a period of time as life unfolds on life's terms with the normal disappointments and mm. that, that occur that um, that we have to uh, get humble again um, with um, th- when things don't go our way or whatever and, and um, it's easy to forget that uh, things aren't going to always go our way which kind of brings us back to the the topic how do we self-soothe when that happens yeah yeah. yeah, that's so true, Mark. It really does bring me back to that. And this is such an important discussion tonight, Monty, because it's, it's at the heart of this emotional sobriety as our ability to maintain our balance, or if we're knocked off balance, to, to recover it. And, you know, there's nothing that knocks you off balance as much as if you get hurt or disappointed. And that's a real challenge, and you know, when you start to think about it, well, you know, where did we learn? How did we learn to deal with our being hurt or disappointed? And it goes way back in our lives. I mean, you know, um, it was very interesting that uh, when I became a father, um, I was talking to my sponsor, Tom, about it. And he said, hey, Al, did you ever pay attention to how long you can stand your uh, daughter crying? And I go, yeah, God, it's it's about two minutes, I think. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I start to get anxious inside and uncomfortable, and I want to do something to stop her crying. He goes, he goes, I believe that that's the amount of time that our pain and disappointment was tolerated by our parents. And so it kind of grows off, you know, this kind wow. of alarm clock goes off that says, now you've got to stop now. You've had two minutes. You've cried for two minutes, and now knock it off. You know it's time to to you know quit quit whining about it, and now stop the tears. If you don't stop the tears, I'm really going to give you something to cry about it. Oh yeah, about and so 
So we don't ever learn, we don't ever get any coaching from our parents in terms of how to really soothe ourselves. And Mark, you wanted to say something about that, huh? No, I was just uh, identifying with the two two minute thing and, and no, right? being the parent in the thing and um, how easy it is not to uh, tolerate much more than that. Yeah, it's really interesting how that goes off. So, so the first thing that that I want our listeners to to really become aware of, Monty, is that their ability to soothe themselves and, and to really stay with themselves when they're disappointed or hurt has to do with how much that was tolerated when they were young. And it becomes a somatic experience. It really does. It's in your body. And you can really feel when you hit that point when now you're supposed to be over it. But nobody ever tells us how to get over it. You know, you're told, stop crying. Oh, yeah, just get over it. But no one tells you how. Yeah, you just yeah. get over it. And you know how we got over it? We shut ourselves down. Yeah. We had to desensitize ourselves. We had to cut ourselves off from, from what we're feeling. But do you think that really does it? Does that take it away? No, it just stops it. It just pushes it in the background. But there's nothing resolved. We don't learn anything from the experience we're having. In fact, we're told to stop having the experience that we're having. And so we start to develop this weird relationship with ourselves where where we don't even know how to be with ourselves and to be present with ourselves. It's real shaming. It's real shaming, you know, to, to say, and, you know, siblings do this all the time. They, they they tell the younger sibling, oh, oh, that didn't hurt. That that isn't a big deal. When to the to the sibling, it is. Parents have said it to their children, right? And and it's it's all shame based. Yeah, it's all shame based, and 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 you you when when I've been shamed to to control me, and when I shame myself to control myself. I'm not really comforting myself. You no. know, I'm really <clears throat> being toxic towards myself. I, I'm either erasing myself, criticizing myself, faulting myself, blaming myself. You know, all these things that that really don't help me. You know, deal with the pain and the hurt that I'm feeling. So this, so at the heart of this emotional sobriety, as we've talked to our our listeners about a lot is the ability to regulate yourself, to soothe yourself, as Mark mentioned a minute ago. And it becomes quite a challenge because none of us have really learned how to do that. And what did we do? We turned to alcohol and other drugs as a way of dealing with our feelings. Yeah. And we relied on that to to regulate ourselves. And when you regulate yourself with drugs, you know, you never can get really well regulated because... The nature of the drugs themselves are going to dysregulate you. Yeah, because they come with their own set of uh, of, of uh, problems uh, uh, as well. So, so thus is the difference between medicating versus comforting. You got it. I mean, there's a big difference, and and you know, there's really three things that need to happen. We need to learn how to stand with ourselves. I I use the term a lot. How to support ourselves. We also need to learn how to soothe ourselves, and we need to learn how to have compassion for ourselves. And what we see when we stop our self-deception, when we really look at ourselves honestly, how can we face ourselves without putting ourselves down or criticizing ourselves or, or judging ourselves? So if, if somehow we can start to develop in these three different areas, then we can start to learn how to comfort ourselves and that. You know, I'm going to stop a minute. I'll make you mark a chance to comment on this. And I want to give you a couple of clinical examples. And I know at some point we'll need to take a break. But well, let, let, let's hear from Mark a little bit. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, um, I'm thinking about, um, um, you know, the coin, the medallion, to thine own self be true. And then the question becomes, well, how? Well, work the steps. Okay, but what happens when I work the steps? Well, if I really work the steps um, and um, I'm doing the... Uh, the inventory work and how it works uh, and, and and looking at my resentments and fears and, and um, you know, what my part is and what was uh, uh, not my part, um, I'm going to probably get some increased uh, objectivity working with my sponsor on, um, you know, what's my stuff and what's other people's stuff such that I'm going to be able to um, stand with myself, soothe myself, and then have compassion for myself. And, you know, being able to—I I don't know—maybe that's the power of another alcoholic talking to an, to uh, 
another alcoholic in terms of getting some relief. If I have to stay in my head with with all these ideas, especially old ones, which uh, you know were shame based from uh, my parents, even right. if they did what they could, then um, or or other people when I was powerless as a kid, then um, if I have to if I have to stand with that stuff and don't get any relief, I'm gonna. I'm going to have a hard time staying with myself, but when I got somebody else who's willing to stand with me and listen and accept, then um, somehow I get the power to, to to do the same with myself, and then I can be with others. So I, I guess that's the magic of the program. Uh, Eli- you know, the way you said <clears throat> it's so powerful because we learn how to relate to ourselves differently when someone relates to us differently. It's really what you're saying, you know, when someone can take the time and really say, look, you know, it's it's the pain you're in is the pain you're in, and I'm going to just stay with you while you're in this pain. I mean, think about that. How many times have people really said that to you and were willing to stay with you in that state of mind? You know, I know for me, when my sponsor did it with me, and, it, and, and I have a close friend, Roger, you know, I was going through a real tough time about 10 years ago, and he would sit with me, and sometimes I would cry for 45 minutes with this guy. Wow. I was in so much pain, and not once did I ever get the feeling is not off. I mean, he was so accepting of where I was at and willing to sit with me in this raw, naked, dark place when I had a hard time staying with myself in it. And that's what we do, man. We really do learn how to treat ourselves different when we have somebody. I call that person that Mark is, is talking about, Bonnie, an enlightened witness in your life. Oh, boy, that's a great term. Now, let me ask you something, Dr. Berger. That person that helped you through that, that person uh, had gone through the steps, had learned how to apply and implement them in their in their life, right? Well, my sponsor, Tom, did. This other fellow I was talking about is Roger Andes. And dear friend of mine, I met him in graduate school. And Roger's not one of the, not one of us. Okay. And but he's 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 a brilliant therapist and even a better friend. But 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 he was well qualified to do that. My point is, yeah, really, really well. And, but it's his nature too. Okay. Well, what I say is that you know a lot of people that are therapists aren't necessarily great therapists. <laughs> well, no, that's that's very true. Let, you know, let, it, let, it, let me. It, Person money, doesn't it? I mean, it does. I think Roger was that way, whether he would be a therapist or not. Well, let, let me let, let me say this though, and, and, and you know, and we share in this frustration, uh, and 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 uh, uh, this is something that sometimes I think it's getting better. Sometimes I think it's not. I, sometimes I don't know what to think, and that is. And let me t- say this to Mark as well. Um, we're talking about a process that left to our own devices we don't do very well, especially when we don't know how to, because you guys both mentioned, you know, people tell us to straighten up and fly right, just get over it or whatever, but then they don't tell us how to. Um, If there are not people in our lives that have been through this, that have had a, uh, to to quote a phrase, a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps, or have have got the... uh, the personality and the giftings like your friend had um, that have the abilities and the experience to help us, then we're, then we're being taught by people that don't know what they're doing. And we have within our 12 steps, uh, uh, fellowships, not the program, but the fellowships, so many folks that um, are just going by uh, 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 platitudes and meetings and 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 the fellowship and not really the program and they're becoming old timers and they're teaching people stuff that isn't working because they're not doing what was laid out that worked so well before and, and it, it's very disheartening, is it not? But I, you know, everything you're saying makes sense, and I've I've seen it and experienced it to a certain degree and. But that's the beauty of the program is if I'm interacting with a sponsor who initially had something I wanted and was attractive um, for whatever reason, and um, in my relationship with that guy, um, 
I'm feeling like I'm getting the message there's something wrong with me a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. I need to relook at if I really want what that sponsor is delivering. Is that, you know, somebody similar to um, uh, somebody that wasn't so good for me earlier in my life? Or is this guy um, giving me a sense of uh, increased self-acceptance and um, that ability to stand with myself uh, and be compassionate by being compassionate with me? And I'm not talking about some pushover guy who doesn't have any direction, um, but somebody who has direction, who's committed and enthusiastic about bringing me through the steps, uh, who practices it and, um, you know, will call me out but isn't necessarily... um, 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 you know, shaming in the in the process. I mean, right? Healthy shame too. If I'm acting shamelessly, hopefully somebody will say something. Yeah, uh, get to feel that. But you know, so yeah, there's winners and losers in the program. And um, you're right, though. There's people that are you know kind of fluff and buff, and you know get a lot of time put together, and that's really what they got to offer. Is they got a lot of time, but not a lot of peace. The good news the good news is there's still a lot of people out there that are doing the deal the way it was laid out and 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 if you'll if you'll just give it a chance and not walk out of a meeting just because you haven't had that wonderful experience in your first thirty days um you will probably find somebody that can walk you through this stuff right right dr Berger don't you think so yeah I know I think that's right yes. Yeah. And what we're talking about is is we're really the blind leading the blind here. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's not a lot of us that, that have had this experience that know how to help, and so we're kind of all fumbling at this and trying to figure it out together. And, and you know, sometimes, like my buddy's a few steps ahead of me, and he's able to pull me forward, then I can pass that on. And, you know, that's kind of how we all, you know, evolve in this program is it's, you know, one drunk helping another drunk take that next step. And then when we take that next step, we're able to stick out our hand and help that next guy take that next step. And so, you know, we're all in that process, right, of becoming who we can be and becoming healthier and and really trying to learn how to deal with some of these things that, that we've never dealt with and, you know, I know we got a break coming up, and after the break, I want to talk about a few clinical examples of this. Awesome. And people discovered in terms of how to comfort themselves when they're hurt. Let, let, let's do that. Folks, uh, don't go away. Uh, w- more with Dr. Allen Berger and Mark Baumgartner when we return. I had this illness that really made me powerless over alcohol and that insisted that I got drunk. And so I got drunk. It doesn't have anything to do with trying to control it. An alcoholic who picks up the first drink will pick up the second drink. I can't say to anyone, no, 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 don't drink. But I can say that when you decide you don't want to drink, come to AA. The door to AA is always open. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Check your phone book, newspaper, or AA.org. Everybody, it's the Monty Man. Listen, if you have uh, seen value in what we broadcast here at Take 12 Recovery Radio, we would ask that you would consider a financial donation to help us stay on the air. Listen, it is always for fun and for free for you, um, but it's not for us. It's actually quite expensive for us to keep doing what we're doing and bringing you the quality, the sound quality, and the broadcasting platforms that we do here at Take 12 Recovery Radio. If you'd like to donate... Uh, please visit us at Take12Radio.com. Scroll down to the bottom of the page on the left-hand side. There's a Donate button. Just click on it, and it'll tell you how you can donate. Thank you for your consideration. And now, back to our final episode of Step-by-Step Toward Emotional Sobriety. This one entitled, Comforting Yourself When You're Hurt or Disappointed. All right, uh, welcome back to Step-by-Step Towards emotional sobriety with uh, Dr. Ellen Berger and our special guest, Marm, excuse me, Marm, Mark uh, Baumgartner. And he is the uh, director of uh, inpatient services, uh, part of the clinical uh, directing staff at Hazel and Betty Ford Center. And we've been talking about uh, comforting ourselves when we're hurt or disappointed. And Dr. Berger, you're going to give us some clinical uh, examples. Well, yeah, I want to talk about a situation in that um, this woman, she was uh, dating another person in the program, 
And, uh, you know, that can be a challenging thing. Yeah. Sometimes date someone else in the program. And, and she had long-term um, recovery at the point. I mean, she was probably at least between 15 and 20 years into her recovery at that point in time. And he was also a long-termer, right? I mean, he mm-hmm. was probably at 20, 25 years. And it was one of these situations where she was crazy about him, she really loved him, she wanted to spend as much time with him as she could, and he was into the relationship and then not into the relationship. So he was kind of here today, gone tomorrow kind of guy. Oh, right? boy. Yeah. So when he was there, they had a great time, but they, they would go three, four days, he wouldn't call her, she wouldn't hear from him, she tried to reach him, and then all of a sudden, out of blue, he contact her again. And these periods of time when he wasn't in contact with her, well, threw her for a loop. I mean, she'd be sitting in my office and just in a tremendous amount of pain. You know, God, what am I doing? I'm crazy about this guy, but I don't want to be in this relationship, but I can't let go. And I mean, she was really suffering money. Um, Wow. her you know, worried that she was just being used and that she was a booty call. And then there were other times when they'd get together, she could really see that the relationship was much more than that. But she was torn, man. She was in a lot of conflict and a lot of pain. It wasn't unfolding in the way that she had hoped it would, right, in the way that she had liked, would have liked the relationship to unfold. Sure. And it was really interesting is she sitting there in this pain and she didn't want to drink again. She was very much committed to her recovery. I saw her rocking. Oh. Just very, very subtly as she's talking to me and tears are coming down her eyes, I see her sitting there and there's this rocking motion going on in her body. So I said, listen, I want you... Not, I don't want you to stop this because I don't want to make you self-conscious, but I want you to, to pay attention to this rocking that's going on and see if you could just follow that for a minute. See where that wants to take you. Hmm. And what happened is she started to rock even more. And as she rocked, she cried more. But it was a different kind of a crying. It was like a deeper crying. It was more of a healing crying that started to take place. And what turned out out of this whole process is is her body knew exactly what she needed to do to comfort herself. But she was not using her awareness of what was going on with her to, to, to pay attention to what her body was telling her that she needed to do. As well as, I'm sure that a part of this was, I'm an adult and I shouldn't be sitting here rocking. Oh, Great yeah. People rock themselves, right? I mean, right. Like that. So she had these rules, too, that prevented her from really following, you know, this very, very natural movement that would have comforted her. Well, we just started to explore that in the session. We experimented with it, and she started to do it. And, the, you know, the effects were immediate. They were very powerful. And you know what she did? She bought a rocking chair. <laughs> hey. Wow. Night after this session, she went home, she put a rocking chair, and now when she would be in these states, instead of struggling with it, she'd put herself in the rocking chair, get herself a good handkerchief, and she would just support herself and let herself cry, and she would rock herself and soothe herself. Now, what happened after about six months of this? The relationship, she stopped it. She says, I don't want to go through this anymore. I've given it a chance. This is not what I want in my life. And she's able to move on. But she didn't run away from the pain. And see, that's the message that I want our listeners to get, Monty, is that none of us, none of us that are in recovery have done well in terms of being able to stay with our pain and confront ourselves and to just feel bad. That we think if we're feeling bad, we've got to run away from it, we've got to avoid it, we've got to medicate it, we've got to change how we're feeling and God, wouldn't it be a novel concept, instead of trying to change it, we just stayed with it. That we just tried to sit with our pain and see where it's going to lead us and what it has to tell us. Because there's a lot of important information in our experience, but only if we can apply our awareness to what is happening and to stay with what is happening. 
And look, not many of us have learned how to do that. Right. That's where we ended up, you know, where we ended up. Yeah. Because we were avoiding ourselves in so many different ways. Wow, that that's 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 powerful stuff. Uh, when when my uh, when you talk about these things, every once in a while, I will reflect as you as you're talking about something in my youth. But it was in the year 2001 when my father passed away uh, from a very very painful painful uh, bout of, of peripheral T cell lymphoma, and I'll never forget this. Um, and I remember it, and it's a good thing I remember it. My mother, uh, as as she called me up, she said, Dad has passed. I went over to their apartment, and the hospice was there, and the coroner was there, and they put Dad in a body bag, and they wheeled him out the door. I had never witnessed anything like that before. And as I began to... Um, show outwardly my emotions, my mother turned to me and said to me, she said, now don't you cry. Don't you do that. Don't don't you dare do that. There it is. There it is, man. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I've never forgotten that. Now, that was very wounding at the time. Um, but I was able to learn from that and, and especially and, and, and vow to never say that to my children. Uh, but man, lots of people, that's the kind of things they're hearing all day long. That's right, man. You know, I had a, I had a similar experience a few years ago. My mom passed, uh, too young and, um, it was a, you know, it was an illness, uh, where, you know, she was in pain for three months. So there was, you know, one aspect of relief, but, um, there wasn't, there wasn't going to be a viewing. Uh, at the funeral, and I flew into town, and so what we did is we put together four or five poster boards with collages of pictures through our, um, through her life, and, and um, certainly, you know, my life uh, with her was on there, and as I reviewed, you know, as I, I just remember sitting in the uh, living room looking at this collage um, the evening before the funeral, and and just allowing this pain to come up and out, it was like I was throwing up. But yeah, it was just waves of of gut wrenching pain, mm-hmm. and I was it was weird because I was, you know, even though I was by myself because I hear you know a lot of times when you're doing grief you should have a witness, but I knew I was healing at one level as I allowed the pain to come up. That's the flip side of feeling the pain is is uh, we get the gift of healing, and then the next day at the funeral. Um, it was a full house, but there weren't a lot of people speaking when that opportunity came up. And I thought, you know, gosh darn it, if I can stand up and speak in front of folks at an AA meeting, I'm sure as heck going to get up and talk about my mom. And I could barely get a word out. I was so choked up. Um, but I remember sitting down and my dad said, you know, that took a lot of courage because I'm the only one in my family who did it. But it was because I was willing you know, to be present with that pain. And I'm so, so grateful that that's how it turned out that I was able to do that that day. So I completely identify with your story there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. The thing, you know, money is, is the same thing is that it's, it's a very natural thing. And it's part of how we heal ourselves is to cry. When yeah. We're upset. Yeah. And there's, there's different kinds of crying. See, when we're crying, for the right reason, is because we're in pain and we just need to stay with it and heal that pain, then we don't need to be comforted. So this is a strange idea, but the crying is the comforting. Is when you're crying to cry, you're comforting yourself. When you cry to get somebody to comfort you, it's a different kind of crying. It's a manipulative crying. Oh, boy. So when I cry to get Mark to come over and to pay attention to me, I'm not crying to comfort myself. I'm crying to get him to do something for me that I'm not doing for myself. And so so this is where it gets kind of confusing because we've learned to use our emotions to try to hook other people in. That's the word Bill Wilson talked about. Hook other people in to do for us what we're not able to do for ourselves. Yeah. 
and it, look, this is the thing we've been talking about over and over again is our emotional dependency, right? Now right. emotional dependency hooks in. So if I'm crying for myself and Mark comes over to hug me while I'm crying, my experience is going to be, you know, Mark, I'm not able to comfort you right now, and you're wanting to comfort me because I just need to stay with my pain. I don't need him to do that. Right. Nice sits there with me, you know, and, stay, and takes care of himself. That might be something I'd like. But I don't need him to do anything because I'm doing what I need to do. So let me ask you this. It, so sometimes when a person uh, is weeping and they get up and they move to another room and go shut the door, it might be a really wise thing not to follow them, right? Exactly. They just may need to go and do that. Now, if that's your partner and you start to feel anxious about them going to right. do that, then now you've got to sit and comfort yourself and to repair yourself so that you're not trying to control them to stop them from feeling what they're feeling because you feel it's bringing up something for you that makes you uncomfortable or makes you anxious. So don't be offended if the person says, no, I just need, I need to be alone. Don't, don't take that wrong because that's probably the way they're dealing with it. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. That That's a really, really, really good point. And it's a very subtle point that nobody really attends to or talks much about, but it's, it's when I am experiencing what I need to experience, it's the experience of it that is healing. It's not what somebody else is doing for me. Now, look, in it, if there was a point in this where I said, look, I'm having a little trouble supporting myself, and I could turn to Mark and say, hey, Mark, you know, are you available to talk to me about this? That's taking care of myself, too. You follow me? Right, yes. Say to him, hey, I need that. But let's say I'm in a relationship with him and I don't say that and I expect him to figure it out. See, this is where that emotional dependency comes in. Now I'm expecting him to just respond to me because, God, if he cared, of course he would do that. But you see, it's a game I'm playing because I don't want to be vulnerable and ask for what I want because he might say, you know, I can see you're in trouble, but... I've got my own stuff going on right now. I got to deal with. Yeah, you know, you know what, guys, vulnerable. Guys accuse women uh, of this all the time, but we do it too. We expect people to read our minds too. Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah and 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 uh, one thing uh, Dr. Berger said once that's really resonated with me is in relationships, if there's too many rules, there's not enough room for people. <laughs> that's good. There's, we always got all these unwritten rules about how things are supposed to go. This is okay. That's not okay. Um, but when there's too many rules, there's not enough. There's not enough room for people. And and uh, so it's so true. You know, Mark, we've talked about this a lot. It, I, it was interesting. I was doing a session with a couple the other day on the phone. They're down in Texas, and uh, yeah. and they she wants to marry this guy. She's crazy about him but she's concerned that he doesn't have the same kind of a commitment she has to marriage. And the rule she has is that when you get married, you got to stay married no matter what happens, and it has to be a commitment for a life. You know, it's through sickness and health and all that stuff, all the, the old vows, right, the marital vows right. that we still hear a lot of people have. And... Um, so, you know, I was interested, as we were talking about it, I said, look, you know, there, there's something interesting to me in this, is that you're saying that you want him to have it, and and I'm wondering if you're aware at all that you don't have that. Ha ha, good if, point. She goes, well, what do you mean I don't have it? Of course I have it. It's very important to me. I said, well, look, recently he was away for a long extended trip out of the country, and while he's gone, you're sitting over here on this end of it saying, I'm not sure I want to be with you because you're not here. Mm. Ah. I don't know if I can marry a guy that has to have these travels in his work and stuff like that. And I said, so here you are expecting him to have this kind of a commitment, and you're saying that you have it. But in fact, when this was going down in a way and you were really lonely and stuff and it was difficult for him... You were questioning whether you wanted to stay in this relationship or not or keep the engagement going. Wow, that's a great observation. Well, she couldn't see it, see, in herself because yeah. it was incongruent, right? Right. She can't see where she's not doing it. So when she's not able to do it, what does she need? Everybody else to do it. 
because she doesn't know how to do it. So if you do it for me, then it's going to mask the fact that I've got a problem and I don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. It's, so, like we, it's like we project the uh, worst fear about ourselves onto others and expect them to compensate for us. Exactly. And we also project what we're worried that they're doing to us, we're doing to them, exactly. and we project that on them, and we don't see that we're doing it. And remember, we had that talk, that was a couple you know, shows ago, where we yeah. talked about you've got to own your own projection. <clears throat> right. Projects all over the place. Now, i got to tell you, she didn't like me pointing this out to her. Oh, no, of <laughs> and, course not. Oh, man, her face was, you know, you know, it was all scrunched up, and she had this look on her face. If I could get my hands around Dr. Berger's neck, I'd swing. <laughs> but if she doesn't look at this, and if she doesn't start to confront that, and that's the other thing I was going to say here, is a part of comforting yourself and facing and dealing with the stuff you need to face, it's really creating a crucible of self-confrontation and where you are willing to confront yourself and to look at the worst in you. And you've heard me say this many times, Monty, is that only the best in us can look at the worst in us. And so when you're looking at the worst in you, when you're admitting what a creep you are, when you're admitting that you're not doing what you're expecting other people to do, that's the best in you that's seeing that. There's nothing better in you than to be able to be that honest with you. That's one of those other paradoxes in recovery, like uh, surrender to win. That's right. Yeah. It's totally that paradox. That's awesome. That That's awesome. And, and you know, that, that in itself is, is can be very comforting if we would just realize maybe the reason that I'm able to see how crappy and what a turd I've been in this situation is because I'm able to see it. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Yep. And, and, then, you know, it's still there, but I can see it for what it is. And it's it, when I can't see it and I'm in denial, then it's running the show. And um, what, one, of the other, um, one of the other helpful things Alan uh, has mentioned that I've uh, tried to remember to apply uh, for myself is um, when this relates back to the stuff about relationship and, and being unrealistic on expectations of others when I'm not dealing with my own stuff, uh, but is to insert myself uh, into the situation. In other words, to um, sort of speak my truth, even though um, when I when I do that, I'm not necessarily going to uh, have the message received uh, very well. Instead of staying in fear about how I'm going to be, um, you know, taken when I speak my truth, um, I guess that goes back to thine own self be uh, true as well. So, am I willing to? Um, even though it's the, the result's going to be potentially conflict in my willingness to say the heck with it and throw it in there, and not in a, um, you know abusive, uh, alienating way to the other person, but just uh, knowing it's not going to be popular to say it anyway um, and, and take that risk. Does that make any sense, you guys? A lot of sense. Yeah, because if you don't, if you don't, eventually it's going to end up coming out and bleeding all over somebody in an inappropriate manner at some point, won't it? No, I think it does, man. I definitely think that that's what happens, Lonnie. But you know what? What what Mark is saying is is that you know we got to pay attention to to saying things for the right reason, right? Take it position. So if I say things because I need to say it, see, I don't need a certain response from you. But if I say something and now I'm waiting for you to say something because of what I've said, well, now it turns out what I said was really a manipulation to get you to say something. Yeah. Back to that thing, if if I have emotional sobriety, then I do what I do because it's the right thing for me to do, not because I'm going to get something from it. I mean, you and I have this talk a lot. Yeah. It's very easy for us to lose sight of this. But I do what I do because it's the right thing to do. It's what's important for me to do. And so my doing it is the satisfaction. That is the completion of it for me. But if I do it to get something from you, to get your recognition, to get your validation, to get you to like me, whatever it is, then when you're not forthcoming with what I'm trying to manipulate you for, I get upset with you. And I say, what kind of a friend are you? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever nonsense I'm, I'm into at that particular oh, yeah. point. Yeah. So yeah. That's what Mark is bringing us back to is, 
if if we're going to stay centered, then when when we do when we hit that mark, then what we do is for ourselves, and we don't need anybody else to participate in any other way than they are. So if he had to walk out while I'm crying, he could walk out, and I would be okay with that, and I wouldn't have this rule like, my God, how could you walk out? Because then my crying was to keep him in the room. You see what I mean? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> By right reason, he can get up and walk out. He can even say he doesn't like my crying, and I can say, I'm sorry you're having trouble with it. I need to cry. Mm-hmm. So there can be room for him to have whatever reaction he has, and there's room for me if I can hold on to my autonomy for me to have whatever reaction. Now, my God, wouldn't it be great if we could be that mature? <laughs> oh, boy. boy! There, there's a phrase. I want to run this uh, this statement by you guys. Uh, it's something I've come across uh, as of late that has really been a gem when it comes to stopping and... Um, asking myself a question before I react. And this is how it goes. Uh, Before I act, if I will stop and ask myself, in light of my past experience, my current circumstance, and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing for me to do? Not what is the right thing, not what is the fair thing, but what's the wise thing? And I, I got to tell you, and you know, I, I've used this along with things that I've learned, Mark, from from Doctor Berger about emotional sobriety. And I have got to tell you that it is just amazing to me um, if we will just pause. And, and learn not to live based on our knee-jerk reactions, how much healing we will experience in our lives. Well, listen, even in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it, it, it encourages us to restrain tongue and pen. Yeah. Right? <laughs> there's a line, there's a phrase in the book that says, God, when you're upset, show restraint in terms of your tongue, what you say to people. And, and and your pen. Now, that doesn't mean to just swallow it. That means just wait a minute, get balanced, and then see what you want to say about the situation. So, you know, in no way are we talking about that we're going to just be these hallowed saints that walk around right. that are never bothered by anything. That's sure not me. Not, <laughs> I mean, that's not me either. Oh, I, I, I can be reactive and a pissy little baby, as my wife calls me at times. You know, I still have that in me, but I'm less so today. I gain my balance quicker today than I've ever been able to do before. And most of the time, I'm not in that emotional turmoil that I used to be in all the time. And that's the the gift of this program, that it really is a way of us on a daily basis, right, having the ability to, to, you know, balance ourselves out and to really, really have that emotional sobriety, which is what we're hoping that our listeners are going to get some from listening to us. Either yeah. that or we're just driving crazy, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> What'd you say? i got to find my center of emotional insanity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> i got to find my center of emotional insanity. That's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, this is good. This, this, is, this is great stuff. Thanks, guys. Great, so, Mark. It's so, been so great much. having you on our show tonight. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Mark. It's a thank- lot to you guys. Yeah, th- th- this is fun. Well, any closing remarks from either one of you on, on this topic tonight? No, no, I just I just really want to encourage our listeners to learn how to stay with, with what they're experiencing and to find some ways to listen to themselves, listen to their body. You know, even if they need to sit there and make sounds, it's okay, make your sounds. You know, there's this whole somatic experience in therapy, and it's really about making a certain sound Right, and staying with that sound and letting that resonate inside you. And I encourage a lot of my patients to do that when they're when they're in their pain is to just let the sounds come out. You see, we have all these ideas that we're supposed to be adults and not supposed to act that way. It's only what kids do. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, you know, as you know, Monty, I've got this little fifteen month old girl in my life 
you know, Maddie, yeah. my daughter, and she teaches me so much about, you know, who we really are. And, you know, she's so beautiful because, you know, my wife and I haven't screwed her up too much yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's able to, to be who she is. And if she cries or needs to cry about something, let us know that it bothers her, she does. Yeah. I mean, she's just so present to whatever it is that's going on with her, and she's so real about it. And, you know, I'm not. I'm, be- I'm better than I was, but I don't do that. You know, I'll stop myself from saying what I need at times, or I won't cry when I want to cry. And, you know, I play all these games with myself. But, but these are all the things that we've got to learn. You know, when I talk about recovery money, I say we're recovering our lost true self, man. Yeah. We're recovering yeah. that lost self that we have, man, that we've gotten so far away from. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, you talk about your daughter uh, quite often, and, and you know, no, no wonder. Just about every major spiritual teacher uh, in the world refers to becoming childlike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very I, interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. Well, guys, uh, that's a great point, man. Thank you, Bye, Money. I love you. Great show again, Mark. Great Thanks, having Monty. you on the show. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate it. Thanks, thanks, you guys. Uh, it, it's been been very, very beneficial. Well, well, folks, you can visit Dr. Berger's website at uh, abphd.com. You can email him as well at abphd at msn.com. And you can click on the links here if you forget all that uh, on the uh, under under workshops at take12radio.com. Under workshops at the top left, you're going to see a list. And one of them is going to be step-by-step towards emotional sobriety as we present a, a different show uh, once a month now on a monthly basis with Dr. Alan Berger. A special thank you to our special guest, Mark uh, Baumgartner of uh, the Hazel and Betty Port Center. Remember, my friends, do something now that will make the person you will be tomorrow proud to have been the person you are today. Until our next broadcast, this is the Monty Man, along with Mark and Dr. Alan Berger, and we're wishing God's perfect serenity for you. Bye-bye now. This has been a broadcast of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting.